Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Well, we're going to do something uh, a little different. Now, last, w- last week I used the PowerPoint. We can bring the lights down a little bit so you can see this well. Hopefully this will work. Um, I don't really like doing this in, in, a, in the congregational setting, but uh, this is basically what we do on Wednesday night for our study that we just concluded on the uh, significance and meaning of the law. I thought I'd tr- turn my attention. I was asked to do some things that might be topical in nature. And so an issue that I'm, dr- I'm dealing with, I'll share with you, and I think an issue that we all deal with from time to time and perhaps dealing with significantly this, uh, in these days are hurts and disappointments. And so I thought I might think about what the scriptures have to say about overcoming such things and dealing with those things. And then I read somewhere that Woody Allen had said, life is full of suffering, heartache, and sorrow, and then it's over too soon. (laughs) And I thought, oh my goodness. But he's right about that, isn't he? And of course, my favorite prophet, Bob Dylan had written a song on his Oh Mercy album. You know, what a great album that is, Oh Mercy. And one of the songs that he wrote, and I wanted to get all the lyrics here, I didn't think of it in time, but one of the songs he wrote on that album is entitled Broken. And the chorus just says, everything is broken. You know, he talks about broken springs, broken this, broken that, broken this, everything is broken. And it's true. Everything in our world is broken, you know. And so when I think about disappointments and hurts and loss and brokenness, you can think about it in almost a universal scope, right? There are hurts and disappointments, brokenness, sorrows, pain, anxiety, fears that come about when we read about, for example, the tsunamis that plagued our planet. You remember the one that hit, I can't remember the, how long ago, it almost feels like, or uh, about a year ago in Japan. I remember that because some of my students who had gone into the Navy were on some ships that were providing some medical help and, and other kinds of, of uh, help to the Japanese uh, off the coast. I remember reading some things that they had put in, in Facebook. Or when you read of the tsunami, I think that it hit like in Southeast Asia, 
The Philippines, oh my goodness. And what happens when earthquakes strike and cities are demolished, villages gone, just like that? You remember what happened when we saw all the hurricanes or whatever had hit Haiti and the islands in the Caribbean? I mean, these are just incredible. We think about the universal scope of pain and sorrow and suffering. When you think of over, this is staggering to me, over 100,000 people have been killed in the whole Syrian conflict. Uh, over 100,000. You know, we talk about 3,000 or so killed during the Iraq war. I don't know the exact numbers. But over 100,000 in Syria. When you think about those children that were kidnapped, I don't know how many there are, hundreds or so, that were kidnapped in Nigeria, the pain and suffering that goes on in our world, and I haven't even looked at the United States yet, but what about all the tornadoes that hit in our country? What about the fires that were down in San Diego, the fires going on up in Flagstaff in northern Arizona, the loss of life and the loss of property and things that people invested in in all their lives? But, you know, pain, suffering, heartache, and we could put in all kinds of words there, not only are universal in scope, they reach down to the very core of our being. They reach down to us personally as well as when we think of losses. Think of the loss of a loved one, the loss of a child, the loss of a dear friend. You think of a loss of a relationship, the loss of a marriage. Think of the loss of finances when we invest all kinds of things and our whole future depends on it and it's gone. All of these things just appear in our lives, seemingly without any rhyme or any reason. In the book of Job, it's really interesting, and I want to, over this series that I'm going to be presenting, I want to get into the book of Job. It's a book that's oftentimes ignored or avoid it at all costs, because it is a very difficult book, to be sure. But in the book of Job, you know, when Job gets hit, you read in the first chapter, it says, and then, and then, and then, and then. Like without any rest, without any forewarning, all these things just happen. Like a swirl, like a whirlwind, just boom. His uh, children are killed while they're, while they're partying in a house, and the house falls down upon them. They're gone where some enemies come in and take all of his goats and his uh, cattle and all that he owns and all he possesses, where a fire breaks out and destroys everything that he owns, where his wife and children are now gone, and he's left really with nothing except God, of course, but left with essentially nothing. And it just hits like that unexpectedly in a swirl, in a whirlwind, and things are departed. Now, really, where I would end would be where I'm starting. So we'll probably come back to this at some point. But there are some non-negotiables that we need to remember when we are thrust into the fiery furnaces of life, when we are overwhelmed by the floods that come against us and seemingly an attempt to drown us under its deluge and under its power and under its tides. There are certain non-negotiables, I think, that we need to remember. 
There are no easy answers to the questions of overcoming anything, let alone overcoming hurts and disappointments. There are no simple fixes. There are no seminars you can, you can attend that can tell you how to deal with these things. But Scripture certainly points out some points, some principles, some truths that if we can hold on to, if we can grab hold of, can be the kind of thing that can steady us when everything around us seems so unsteady and unstable and is sort of just falling apart around us. I had shared this with the elders. I had shared it in my Wednesday night Bible study group. I'll share this with you. You know, people oftentimes think that pastors, rabbis, congregational leaders are somehow immune to things. You know, right now, Mary Lou and I are going through probably one of the three most difficult times in our lives. All of them have swirled around the illness that we carry together, Mary Lou more than I, but that we carry together. When we first were made aware that Mary Lou had MS, it was devastating. We were young at that time. We were like 20. Mary Lou was first diagnosed at 18. And of course, when I wrapped my arms around her, I said, we're going to win this thing and we're going to triumph over it. So do not fear because I will be alongside of you from the beginning now to the very end. But those are words. And there's only so much I can really do in the final analysis of those things. But that is a promise I gave that I will stand by to the end of my life. And the fact is that it was a very devastating, heart-wrenching moment for us. Second time it came is when we had moved to Annapolis. The thing that precipitated our leaving chosen people and moving to Annapolis was, again, the rearing of the ugly head of multiple sclerosis and the failure of the people I worked with to come alongside to bring the kind of relief that they ought to have provided. And now we're in the swirl of a third moment as there's re-diagnosis, new treatments, the cost is astronomical, the fear is great, and the tension and stress is incredible to bear. I know that I don't look like that. I know that you see me in a way that says, wow, really? But yes, really. But I also believe God has a calling on my life. And just like he says to Ezekiel when his wife dies, you are not to mourn her passing, but you are to serve me as a prophet. Those are the kinds of things that drive me. God's call and God's word and God's truth and God's presence. Those are the things I try to focus on and I try to help Mary Lou focus on and she tries to help me focus on. We do our best with it, as I'm sure we all do. But this was a really interesting survey that was taken. I thought it was very recent. Bob had mentioned he has heard this before. But let me share this with you. This was over a 1,000 pastors were interviewed, and they were asked questions regarding their ministry. And this is what they found. 80% of pastors are discouraged in their role as pastors. 80%. So you pick any church, 
Eight out of ten churches you walk into, the pastor is discouraged in his role as pastor. Forty percent of the pastors seriously considered leaving the pastorate in the past three months. Fifty percent of the pastors say they are unable to meet the demands of their job and are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but have no other way of making a living. Is that not sad? I mean, these are people who want to serve other people. And the people they desire to serve are causing so much discouragement they would rather leave and wish they could, but can't because they can't figure out what else can I do with my life because I've spent it to whatever degree doing this. For every 20 pastors who go into ministry, only one retires from the ministry. Think about that. 25% of the pastors have been forced out or fired from their ministries at least once. 45% of pastors say they've experienced depression or burnout to the extent that they need to take a leave of absence. Of the 1,000-plus pastors who were surveyed by the Schaefer Institute, every one of them, 100%, had a close associate or friend from seminary who left the ministry because of burnout, conflict in their church, or from a moral failure. 70% of the pastors say they do not have a single close friend. And the same percentage say they have lower self-esteem than when they entered the ministry. Then it says denominational health insurance agencies report that medical costs for clergy are higher than the average professional group. So I got this survey from a pastor who hosts pastors to come together to pray. And that's up in Santa Clarita. So he sent that out and he said, pastoring is a hard calling. You don't have to go it alone. Come up and pray. It was interesting that on that particular occasion, the place was packed out. <laughs> you know, everybody was there. Many times there was like four of us, five of us. That time there was like 15 of us. Because all of us deal with those very issues. And all of, the, all of those issues and all of us, no matter how strong we may appear and how strong we may think of ourselves, are liable to those very same statistics. So I share that with you because there is a great need for encouragement here. Not just for me, but certainly for me, but for all of us who are here. It is critical that we come alongside one another to solve the challenges that we have and to live our life together in the glory of God by virtue of His Spirit, rather than fighting each other about the insignificancies of what it is that we're doing. I don't understand it, to be honest. Because we have such a great opportunity to reach a people who need to be reached, and we're arguing about foolish things. And we're complaining about insignificant things. We should be concerned about, are we walking with the Lord in righteousness? Not whether we play this song, that song, it's at this volume, it's here, it's there, we've got these people coming or not enough of those people coming. We shouldn't be so concerned there's not enough money coming in when we take up the offering or there's not enough in attendance. But you know, that's what predominates our thinking, is it not? Let's be honest. 
We come in and we think, is it going to be filled today? We come in at 10.30 and we wonder to see who's going to walk through our doors and we come here to pray and we turn around and we look that there's just a handful. We're concerned about attendance, more so than we're concerned about are we listening to the voice of God, are we walking in His way, and are we being a glory to Him? It's really wrong, and I would say sinful, what oftentimes has gone around here. I don't say that as pointing the finger at anyone. I could be as guilty as the next person. But if we just try to hide what it is that is at need here, it will just continue to dwindle because the blessing of God is not going to be here. We can work as hard as we can. And all of us are willing to work very hard. We can use all the skills that we have. And all of us have wonderful skills to be shared and to be given. But if we're not in unity with one another, if we continue to devour one another, if we continue to criticize one another, well, we should not complain when we see that we don't have very much of a ministry that means anything to anybody, let alone to ourselves. So I say all these things because I'm very much concerned. And I guess to some degree angry. Because it ought not to be that way. It ought to be different. Now, we all have hurts and disappointments. You're hearing some of mine. These are my disappointments. Because I desire to serve God in a joyous context where when there are issues, we joyously come together to solve what it is that it is we want to do. Not to have our own agenda and to expect everyone to meet that agenda without listening to one another. And we need to do that. Now, let me share with you some things that I think we need to remember if God's going to bless us and if we're going to make a difference in the community we are placed in. There's a lot of upheaval going on in the Messianic community. There's theological upheaval, which is really wild. There are congregations, Beth Emanah up the road is looking for a congregational leader. I believe, but I don't know for certain, that they've interviewed some people, but I don't think that it's moved well for them. I don't know if they've accepted or what. We need to pray for them. We need to come alongside of them. I mean, they have a ministry they need to do. We recently got a, uh, a uh, email from Corey Bell and this video she wants to put together. We should be championing each other's ministries and what each other's attempting to do. I just got an email from Sally Klein O'Connor, who we prayed for and told me a little bit about what happened out at Malthausen. Tomorrow she'll be sharing at Valley Vineyard about what transpired in her ministry in Europe. I think it's marvelous we can come alongside a person like that, pray for them, give to them, and to enable them to do other ministries that God is calling them to. But let me share with you some of these thoughts that I have. Okay, am I doing this now? Is this right? <laughs> okay, I'm trying to think. All right, so there we go. First of all, here's a non-negotiable. Trials are inevitable. 
There's no way we can get around the fact that trials are going to come. In Isaiah chapter 43, it says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. I know we could focus on, I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you. And those are things to be uh, reflecting on. But I want you to think of the whens in this passage. He doesn't say if it happens, but when it happens. Now you ask, but why? Why would all of these things come upon us? Because we live in a fallen world. Because we live in a world in which when Adam and Eve were created, those individuals, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God and opened up the floodgates to sin in our world, corruption in our world, and death in our world. All of the waters, all of the flames, all of the fires are images of death that we are walking through. We are walking through together the valley of the shadow of death. And those images are destructive in nature. The floods that drown people, the fires that burn and extinguish whatever a person has been able to create or to build. Such things will come into every one of our lives. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how many family members you have. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care how many letters you have after your name. Suffering is going to come. Trials are going to come to each and every one of us. And so when we pass through the waters, the Lord will be with us. But here's the non-negotiable. We shouldn't be surprised at the trials that we face. We shouldn't be surprised when these things happen. They are part of the fallen world we live in. They are a reflection of our own fallenness. In Job, it says, For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet humanity, here it is, is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. Trouble, as Woody Allen said, is a normal part of our experience as much as we hate it and as much as we wish it was not. But because of our rebelliousness and our fallenness, this is the reality of the world that we face and the reality that our lives will exhibit. I wish that we could say all of these things will go away, but they will not until we enter into the very presence of God and are with him forevermore. First Peter says, all kinds of troubles, these have come. Here they are. They have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Yeshua the Messiah is revealed. We'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, but what I want you to see is that even Peter tells us these trials come. They have come. And they are to come to try and test and perfect our faith. But what I want you to see is they will come like the sparks fly up. The floods, when they come, the Lord will be with us. When these trials come, God will have a purpose in them. James tells us, consider it pure joy. I don't know how to do that. But he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of diverse kinds. Whatever the trial is, when you face them, he says, 
Consider it. Fortunately, he doesn't say you have to have a smile on your face. He just says, consider it pure joy. I don't get that one. <laughs> I'm glad we're in company together. <laughs> but that's what he says. Because God will work some marvelous things in and through our character that he otherwise could not work. But we'll get to that. Right now, I just want you to see trials will come so that you're not shocked when you find yourself overwhelmed by anything. Maybe a loss of a job. Maybe the finding of a job you wish you didn't have to find. Or whatever the case might be. Of all different kinds, they will come. But not only are trials inevitable, but God is with us in these trials. It's not all bad news I want to share this morning. I want to share that God is with us in our trials. He doesn't just stand sort of apart and look down and says, hope you can handle this because it's coming. He's there with us. He's there in us by the indwelling presence of His Spirit. He will strengthen us and gird us up. And so he says in Second Chronicles, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. Why? To strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Think about this. Has God not already done enough for us? And yet He still probes the world in order to strengthen us who are downcast, to strengthen us whose knees are feeble and weak, to strengthen us whose minds cannot think clearly enough because the pain is too great. It would be enough to say, listen, he suffered and he died for us and we have eternal glory to be with him forever. But the Lord says he still looks at the earth he still probes humanity. And he does it for the purpose not of harming. He's not there with a club to seek to beat us down, but to strengthen us, to enable us to bear it up. And some of the ways he does that we need to get on board with, which is to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Messiah. It is not just an internal strengthening of the inner core of our being. It's also us saying to ourselves, am I to be that strengthening agent of you to another? Or am I going to be one that's going to discourage another, deprecate another, or make it more difficult for that one to do the ministry and calling and fulfill the calling that God has on their lives? The Lord is probing the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Scripture not only says that, but in Mark 10, I just think this is phenomenal. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To serve in the most extreme and complete and ultimate way. To give his life a ransom for many. And as I said before, Yeshua says there's no greater love that anyone can show than that he laid down his life for his friends. And I know that there are many who have said and would say, I'd give my life for you. But what we need to do is to give our living for those around us. 
Not just to say, hey, I would run in front of a car to push you out of the way, but I am here for you to bear whatever burdens you're carrying and to see that you see it through to the glory of God. The Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to serve in which it cost him his life. Are we willing to do the same for one another? Are we willing to lay down our life for one another? Are we willing to serve one another for the glory of Messiah? That's what we need here. And I dare say it, I've said it in other places, I'll say it here. The door is there. If you are unwilling to serve, to love, to support, to be the kind of person Messiah wants you to be, conformed to the image of Messiah, there is the door. And while that may be hard language for some, and maybe you think I'm arrogant, the fact of the matter is, if we're not willing to walk with the Lord, to serve the Lord, to serve one another, then you're only going to be a hardship for us to bear. And there are greater hardships than empty pews. And there are greater hardships than lack of funds. And so I tell you, if you mean business with God, then mean business with Him. And let's stop the complaining. Son of man came to serve. Let's be serving one another. The truth of the matter is, trials will come. But God is with us. That is, those who want to serve Him fully and have a committed heart to Him. I don't judge no man, you judge yourself. And Peter tells us that we are to make our calling and election sure. You do that for yourself, and then you make a choice. What you will do in walking with the Lord and walking with Him here at Beth Ariel. Corinthians says... Do you not realize that Messiah Yeshua is in you? And thus, when we go through trials, he goes through them with us. He looks to strengthen us and to undergird us. He looks to give us wisdom and to grant us kindness and sensitivity and love for one another. That's what Messiah does. You know, there's an interesting passage. I never saw this before. You know, it's amazing how often I'm saying that. But in Matthew chapter 28, right at the end, Yeshua says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I never knew that that same thing is said about God, the Father, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Did you, any, did you know that? If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 31... At the end of the wilderness wandering, or near the end, near the end, it says, Then Moses summoned Joshua, said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with the people into the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them, and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. Get this. The Lord himself goes before you, will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Isn't that what Messiah said? You know, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The very same words Moses says about God to Joshua. You're going in. It's going to be tough. 
Your own people will be rebellious and the people you need, the land you need to seize will resist you. But I will be with you. And so therefore, don't be afraid and don't be discouraged. Deuteronomy 31, I think I closed the Bible. I think it's like 19-ish or somewhere there, but it's 31. Matthew, I just quoted, right? Yeshua said, I will be with you. Two non-negotiables. Trials will come, but the Lord will be with us. Third point I'd like to make is this. God uses trials for our benefit. In Isaiah 64, it says, Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for you. That is so amazing. God is acting in your, your behalf, my behalf. God is working for you. <laughs> I thought he's already done the work. I just got to follow him. No, no, no. He keeps working in and through us. And so when we go through trials, he's using the trial for our benefit on behalf of those who wait on him who rest in him, who relax in him, who follow him, as it were. Job says, but he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Job says, my feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. Coming from a man who suffered horrifically, as we all know. But look at his confidence. I will come forth as gold. That's what God will do through the trials and tribulations we face. We don't want the trials. I understand that. Please take them away and bring things to order in our lives. But God says, listen, when it's over, you're going to be shining like gold. In Zechariah, we know of the nation of Israel. Two-thirds will die. One-third will be brought into the fire. And I will refine them like silver, test them like gold. And look at the result. They will call on my name and I will answer them. They will be my people and they will say, the Lord is our God. The results of the testing are glorious, though we can't see it right now. What is what will be or what happens is 2020, whatever that is. We see clearly after the thing after we've come through it, but it's hard to look forward and know that these things are true. That's why we have to base ourselves on the Word of God and what it teaches us. Malachi says, The Lord will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites. He will refine them like gold. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness. The refining process to bring about righteousness in the lives of people. That's what God is doing to you, in you, and through you, whatever trial you're going through. He wants to produce righteousness in you. He wants to produce the things that characterize God himself, the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, etc. That's what this text is saying. And that's what many of these texts say. In the book of Hebrews, he talks about being equipped with everything good to do his will. The Lord uses the trials that we go through to equip us, to develop in us 
the means by which we can now do His will. I know it's hard to believe, but this is what James says, count it all joy when you go through trials because the result of them will be an equipping to serve Him, to glorify Him, to worship Him, to honor Him. In the Psalms, and my last point, <laughs> just so you know, it's coming to an end. First of all, we need to know trials will come. We need to know that God is with us in those trials, as Scripture says. We know that God is trying to develop and will develop a righteousness in us through them. And the last thing I'd like us to think about is that God is trustworthy during our trials. This is such an incredible psalm. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Do you need help? The psalmist needed a great deal of help. As he came to Jerusalem, he saw the hills and the place where God would be worshipped. He lifts up his eyes to the hills, but look at what he sees. He sees the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He lifts up his eyes, he sees the hills, but it's not the hills he's looking at. It's God that the hills draw his attention to look beyond toward. And when he lifts his eyes, look what he says about the Lord. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He says, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forever. So why do we turn our attention to him? Not to the hills around us. Not to the wise among us. Not to those that are alongside of us. We see each other, but we turn our eyes to him because he's the maker of heaven and earth. And whatever he dares to or determines to create here, it will be his doing through us. So it must be to him we must look. But he's not only the creator of heaven and earth, he's the keeper of all those who walk in his ways. He's the watcher over those who walk in his ways. He's the one looking out for those who walk in his ways. He is the defense of those who walk in his ways. We look to the hills. We look to one another. We look to our attendants. We look to our funds. But we need to look beyond those things to him who dwells forever. Him who will watch us from now until eternity. Him who's the maker of all things and thereby can be the provider of everything we might need. This is a powerful psalm and such a wonderful message for all of us. So how do you find God in our trials? I hope you've gotten a sense that you can at least find him in the trials. But there are a variety of things to be done. And of course, we'll say the typical things. Pray. And the person out there is saying, you don't know how long I've prayed. We could say, read the word. And I could hear someone say, I read it every day. We could say, worship. 
We say there isn't a service I have missed. We say service. We say, well, I'm doing X, Y, and Z. But here is the key to dealing with trials. And it has something to do with those things, but not enough of those things. We need to remember Messiah. He is the one who we need to have in the forefront of our minds when we face trials of any kind. We need to remember what he did for us. Floods may threaten to overtake us. Fires may threaten to put us out and extinguish us. But the Lord walked headlong into the flood of eternal death. He walked headlong into the furnace that would extinguish his life. He walked headlong into the greatest trial of all trials and took upon us, took upon himself our sin and suffered eternal alienation from God. If he can walk into that furnace, he certainly can enable us to walk into the much greater and smaller furnaces that you and I face each and every day, or how often we do. It is Messiah that we must remember and what he endured and did for us. And we must remember it with gratitude that he went to the greatest trial for us so that we could have a sense that he is in the smaller trials with us. The degree to which you have Messiah front and center will be the degree to which you will overcome the trials in your life. And there's no easy road to this. There's no fill in the dots. There's no point one, two, three. Do it and that will happen. This is a learning process. Even as it says of Messiah, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. The writer to the Hebrew says, that is the way to learn to trust him. Indeed, if we do not go into our furnaces and our floods with Messiah front and center, there's only two results that will come of it. You will either hate God or you will hate yourself. You will hate God because you will say, God, why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve it. Who are you to do such and such to me? You will find yourself angry with him, hating him, and berating him for what you're going through. If you don't take Messiah with you and keep him front and center, you will be saying, I don't deserve this. And God is not righteous and fair to allow me to go through it. You will find yourself hating God. You may not use that word hating, but that's what's happening as you're getting angry with him. Or you will hate yourself and you will say to yourself, how could I be so foolish to do this and find myself in this predicament? How could I have been so foolish to have made this decision? How could I have been so foolish to have said those words? How could I have been so, well, you fill in the blank. But you will hate yourself, you'll despise yourself, and you'll make yourself feel like you are worthless. And yet Messiah has died for you because you are everything to him. The only way you can avoid those two extremes is by keeping front and center the suffering Messiah has done for us. And then we say like Peter said, Lord, where should we go 
For you have the words of eternal life. Those are the words we need to be saying day by day when we go through these trials. I'm not deviating. I'm going headlong in because where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And like the three, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, when they walked into that furnace, they found the Lord with them in the midst of their suffering, and he brought them out unscathed. That will be every one of our lots, because when we stand before him, we will be unscathed. And we will rejoice in seeing him, even as he sees us. And we will, we will rejoice that the Lord has done it all for you and for I. How do you overcome hurts and disappointments? They don't, come, be, they don't become overcame, overcome. They're not overcome by pretending they don't happen because we live in a fallen world and they inevitably will. They're not overcome by simply picking ourselves up with our bootstraps. They will come by remembering God is with us and will never leave us nor forsake us. We can overcome them when we realize God has a purpose in it. Like Job himself said, when this trial is over, I will become, I will come out as pure as gold. That was his confidence. Is it your confidence? Is it mine? Will we be more like him and more glorious to behold? And when we go through the trials, we need to remember God is trustworthy in the midst of those trials. And in the final analysis, it's Messiah that's the heart and soul of everything. And when he is front and center, that we can bear up whatever the challenges might be. We can bear up whatever the disappointments might be. And we can find ourselves, as Paul instructs us to do, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word to us this day. We ask that you might help us to live in light of these truths. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to be the kinds of men and women we need to be as examples to our children and that we need to be for one another, that the ministry and calling that you have called us to as a congregation will go forth and go forward with great power and significance. So help us, Lord, by your mercy and through your spirit to keep you front and center in our lives. To keep what you have done for us front and center in our hearts. To keep you that have given so much and continue to serve us, continue to work in our behalf. Help us, Lord, to focus on you, to celebrate you, to follow you, and to do so for your glory and for your honor. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. 
And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.